everybody, and welcome to the Hardcore Finance Show. Uh, today, we're very excited to have a special guest, uh, Glenn Kirshner. He's a retired career prosecutor. He's the host of the Justice Matters YouTube channel and an MSNBC legal analyst. Uh, and uh, we want to talk to him about all the legal matters that have been going on recently with, uh, with Trump and uh, just in general. So hi, Glenn. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Shuman and Alex. Good morning. Good morning. Awesome. So uh, do you want to tell our uh, viewers about your background? You had a very rich background in uh, as a federal prosecutor, and then you moved uh, to the media side. So we'd love to hear uh, what got you interested in, uh, in legal analysis and politics. Yeah, so in um, three minutes or less, uh, I was born in Brooklyn, grew up a gutter kid in Jersey. My pop was a high school football coach uh, in many high schools in New Jersey. Um, went to Point Borough High School, graduated in 79, went on to Washington and Lee University, where I studied journalism. Uh, I was also on an ROTC, Army ROTC scholarship. So upon graduation, I owed the Army four years. I was always keenly interested in military service. But rather than enter active duty after graduating with a journalism degree, I decided to put myself through law school, take an educational delay, and enter active duty as an Army JAG. I did that in the 80s. My first tour was at Fort Richardson in Anchorage, Alaska, where I spent three years prosecuting court-martial cases. I then transferred to Virginia to the Army's Legal Services Agency, spent about three and a half years arguing criminal appeals for the Army when soldiers were convicted at court-martial and they appealed their conviction. I was sort of the prosecutor in the appellate courts. I handled espionage and death penalty cases and a wide variety of uh, a criminal litigation. I then left the army and joined the Department of Justice, specifically the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia, where I spent uh, 24 years as a federal prosecutor handling murder cases and RICO cases. Um, I became chief of homicide after Bob Mueller, guy that um, people may have uh, heard of. Uh, he left as he was my chief. He taught me how to be a federal homicide prosecutor. I took over as chief of the section. So I had the really vibrant experience of supervising all murder cases and all homicide prosecutors in Washington, D.C. Um, when I retired on June 1st, um, I started as an MSNBC and NBC News legal analyst. I've been running my mouth in courtrooms for 30 years and decided I would take a shot at running my mouth on TV. Uh, it seems to have worked out okay. And then um, I branched out into my own YouTube channel, Justice Matters, where I post a daily video sort of analyzing the legal issue of the day, trying to make it digestible for everyone, put it in the, the context of the larger legal picture that's unfolding in our country, and then try to give people information they can use as they assess what to make of this legal hellscape in which we have been living for the last four to five years. So um, that, that's kind of me in a nutshell. What a, what a colorful uh, background and, and impressive background. So we're very lucky to have you. Thank you for coming on. My one question that's completely off script, so sorry, Glenn, I had to ask, but this uh, gentleman that you said we might have heard of, Bob Mueller, what was your... What was a favorite thing working for him that, that he's impressed upon you? And maybe what's um, 
I don't know, a, a story that not very many people know, know about him or, or the interactions with him? Um, yeah, I always hesitate before I tell Bob Mueller stories that people may not have heard before. <laughs> I will say he, I, I've had a lot of great mentors, both men and women. He was probably the strongest, most supportive supervisor I ever worked for. He was my direct supervisor. So this was before Bob Mueller was FBI director and special counsel. He was Bob, the boss, and we would walk into his office every day and kick around legal issues, you know, plea negotiations or trial tactics. Um, okay, we would, yeah, we would kick around different, you know, legal questions. And uh, he, he was um, not big on chit chat. You would go into Bob's office, you would know what the issue was, you would know what facts you needed to present to him so he could help you resolve the issue. You got in, you got out, and there was not a lot of talk about, you know, hey, how's your favorite sports team doing? Uh, you know, he was, he, was a, he was all about business, but I'll tell you, if anything ever broke bad with one of his prosecutors, he had our backs like no other supervisor I ever worked for. But if you dropped the ball, he would bring you into his office behind closed doors and let's just say give you a stern talking to. Um, but I have nothing but the highest regard for Bob Mueller, for the man he is, for his, his ethics, his principles. And we can talk all day long about the investigation he conducted of Trump Russia the report he issued and how he handled that. But um, I will jump in a foxhole with Bob Mueller any day of the week. Can I just ask a really quick, really quick follow-up? Um, there, there are many narratives about his report, bias or unbiased. You know, he's a Republican, but then, you know, then he was favorite with the Democrats. Uh, then Republicans came out against him. In your opinion, do you think any of the work that he's done has any kind of political leaning bias or any kind of political agenda? No, I believe to my core that he plays by the rules, by the law, and he follows the facts. And he issued a report that if you if you read it, and I'm sure you gentlemen have, um, it, it's sort of bulletproof in that he didn't let politics creep into it, in my estimation. Um you know, the one thing that perhaps frustrates me most at the moment about what's going on at the Department of Justice and how Donald Trump continues to give his rallies and recruit his new batch of foot soldiers by continuing to offer the big lie, I'm hoping we can avoid an insurrection 2.0. What frustrates me the most is that Bob Mueller documented multiple felony obstruction of justice crimes in volume two of his report, and he testified to Congress, Donald Trump can be charged with these crimes upon leaving office. Those crimes are ready to be indicted and for whatever reason, inexplicable to this old prosecutor, Merrick Garland's Department of Justice has not charged them and he's letting Donald Trump continue to be the public safety danger that he is by continuing to offer the big lie. He now says he's going to be reinstalled on a date certain in August. This is a little bit of insanity. It's damaging to our democracy and our republic. And I really wish the Department of Justice would move out. 
Yeah, so I would love to dive deep a little bit uh, into this because it's also, I, I'm kind of, uh, my perspective is an outsider's perspective, but when I read the report, I was like, okay, there's enough there to definitely to pursue. Now, I understand that the, for whatever political reason, they don't want to do it while, you know, Trump is in office. But like now that Trump is not in office, I was expecting, boom, you know, to everything start. And what's appearing to me is that they're going after other things for now, like financial things. Uh, so I would love to hear your, your take on like, what do you think the strategy is? Is it more like an Al Capone thing, which is like, let's get him on something that's easy to prove, even if it's smaller or like, what, what do you think of the current strategy? Um, I can't quite discern what the current strategy is, Shimon. I, I wish I could. And, you know, for example, you know, when I left the DC U.S. Attorney's Office, um, that is the office that is now prosecuting, investigating and prosecuting the insurrectionist cases. And I wish I could talk to my friends who are still there and say, what in the world are y'all doing? But that would be improper. I wouldn't do it. And they wouldn't answer those questions if I asked them. You know, from the outside looking in, I do think the insurrection cases are being handled well and professionally. They're still on the bottom rung of the criminal ladder. They're going after the foot soldiers of the insurrection, Donald Trump's troops that he set on the U.S. Capitol expressly by telling them, go down there and stop, action word, what's going on. And they did. That's why Donald Trump is liable, has criminal exposure for inciting the insurrection. It's an easy charge to make, in my estimation. Um, and they're working their way up the criminal ladder. They need to next go after the funders and the organizers and the insiders. That's the way we build a criminal conspiracy case. So I fully understand uh, that that takes a long time and they're doing it well and responsibly. So we can wait for charges to be brought against Donald Trump for inciting the insurrection, assuming they believe they have enough evidence to bring those charges. What I can't understand, this is a long-winded answer to your question, is what is the thinking behind declining to bring the obstruction of justice crimes that were investigated exhaustively, professionally, expertly by Bob Mueller and his team, and the evidence was preserved for future prosecution. I Now listen, I know we've never charged a, a former criminal president. We've had plenty of former criminal presidents like Richard Nixon, and we decided the way for the country to heal was to decline to hold accountable a former criminal president. Well, that's the opposite of healing in my experience. I never once in 30 years told a victim of crime, the way we're gonna heal, the way you're going to move through your nightmare of being victimized is I'm going to decline to prosecute the person who attacked you. Feels like healing, right? No, it's the opposite of healing. We tried it with Nixon, it failed miserably, and it gave birth to Donald Trump. If we decline to hold Donald Trump accountable for the countless crimes he perpetrated against the United States, what will we be giving birth to next? Something much worse than Donald Trump, which frankly, I can't even envision. Yeah, so this is, you bring up a couple of good topics here, the healing versus prosecution. And I, this was my, my next question to you. I think maybe one, uh, one path is kind of like Nelson Mandela path, like heal, let the country move forward. But there is a little bit something to be said 
about holding someone accountable and setting the precedent that even presidents should be or ex-presidents should be held accountable for actions. But let me actually take a step back a little bit, because from what I understand, and please you know, correct me or us if I'm wrong, is that Trump, while in office, was not charged because there was a precedent of not charging sitting precedents, right? Is that the case? Um, from what I understand from the Mueller report, there was no indictment because of that. Is that, is that the case? And should we re-examine that? And maybe are there any kind of hidden negatives to charging a sitting president? Yeah, great question, Alex. So first of all, the Department of Justice, specifically the Office of Legal Counsel, which renders opinions on novel areas of law, like can you charge a sitting criminal president? Um, back, I think, first during the Nixon era, and then it was reaffirmed in about 2000 or 2001, the Office of Legal Counsel issued a legal opinion. And it said, we don't believe you can legally charge a sitting criminal president. You have to wait until he leaves office. Now, the problem with that, um, and you say, are there any hidden problems with respect to taking that position. The problem with that, one, is there is absolutely no legal precedent for them to say you can't charge a sitting criminal president. That's not contained in the Constitution. There is no statute and there is no case law. When a court decides, an appellate court decides an opinion, that's case law, that's precedent. Of those three kinds of precedent, constitutional, statutory, and case law precedent, there has never been a legal opinion or any legal authority that you can't charge a sitting criminal president. The Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice, their boss is the president of the United States because it's an executive branch agency. So they rendered an opinion, perhaps not surprisingly, that we don't think it's a good idea for you to be able to indict our boss. I'm sorry, without any legal authority for you to take that position, there's a little bit of a conflict, but even beyond that, I'm not persuaded. Show me some authority. Here is the, the enormous downside to our, our Department of Justice taking that position. If a candidate for president steals an election, if a candidate for president commits crimes to acquire the presidency, like paying off playmates and porn stars to bury deeply damaging information about his suitability to serve as president, which Donald Trump did. And I can say he did it because his co-conspirator, Michael Cohen, pleaded guilty to it. We know he did that. He broke campaign finance violation laws to steal the presidency. He also welcomed and exploited Russian assistance, as was found in volume one of the Mueller report. So Donald Trump committed crimes and engaged in all sorts of nefarious conduct to, I will use the word, steal the presidency, because by burying that deeply damaging information from the voters, he really did kind of rob us of the full value of our vote. We were entitled to know what, you know, what dirt, what derogatory information was out there on a candidate. Once he stole the presidency, what did he do? He held up the OLC memo as a shield. He said, you now, you can't prosecute me. 
even though I just acquired this shield against prosecution by committing crimes. That is an unworkable paradigm. Because what does it do? It also encourages him to try to steal the presidency a second time so he will continue to enjoy immunity from prosecution. That is not a workable system of government. Now, the downside, Alex, to finish the thought, the downside of prosecuting a sitting president is that it's ripe for abuse. It is ripe for political payback and revenge in, in a way that would be deeply damaging to our nation as well. But I'm going to choose the lesser of the evils. I'm going to say we can guard against a politically motivated prosecution of a sitting president. We can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. But more importantly, we can't let a criminal candidate steal the presidency and then be immune from prosecution for the very theft that got him into the Oval Office. Yeah, it's a very uh, tricky situation. I know in Israel now they're prosecuting the prime minister and the argument there against prosecuting a sitting prime minister is that the, um, the prosecutor, he's not elected, he's appointed. And so you could pretty much disrupt the workings of the government uh, just by prosecuting, just by filing like a, a document. So like you said, it's, it's ripe for abuse. But like what's also shocking to me is that there's so much, um, so much evidence of foreign interference in the Mueller report. And that was very shocking to me because like beyond, I believe, uh, you know, even public statements that Trump said, like, you know, hey, Russia, if you're listening, find Hillary's emails or whatever. That's that's like beyond January 6th saying go there. It's like telling an adversary, hey, I want you to attack us. Yeah. And it's public. It's not like something that was like hidden. So uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about like, the evidence of how foreign powers interfered with uh, the political process here. And like, did Trump have any uh, role in that? Yeah, usually foreign powers interfere or, um, or attack us on the cyber front covertly, right? This, as you just said, Shimon, was Donald Trump the candidate standing up on TV and encouraging an attack on our free and fair election by saying, hey, Russia, if you are listening, Russia was listening because immediately the Russian operatives got to work trying to, among other things, hack into the DNC and the RNC servers. And they did so successfully. Then what did they do? They sort of um, laundered that information through an intermediary and then it was deployed, you know, across American social media, and it interfered in a very real sense with our free and fair elections, all at Donald Trump's urging, which, you know, to use a legal term, to me, that's mind blowing that we let him get away with that. And he has yet to be held accountable because impeachment is a political calculation. He can be impeached 15 times, and that means nothing on the legal front. It's purely a political calculation. Um, and what did we see him do after he was acquitted at a peach impeachment hearing number one? He immediately did something that was quite similar, went to President Zelensky of Ukraine and said, look, I hold in my hands, figuratively speaking, these congressionally appropriated funds 
that are, are designed to go to you to protect your own people against Russian aggression. But I need a favor though, before you get them. I need you to come up with a phony investigation about my political opponent, Joe Biden and his family. And I need you to step to the microphone and announce that phony investigation. This is extortion and bribery 101. This is bribery for dummies. And yet he has yet to be held accountable for that. All of this is inexplicable to me because we haven't even talked about his legion of other crimes, whether it's obstructing congressional inquiries by standing on the White House lawn and saying, my executive branch officials will not comply with lawfully issued congressional subpoenas. That's a textbook example of the federal crime of interfering with obstructing congressional inquiries. Um, so, you know, and we can talk about his responsibility, I believe he has, for avoidable COVID deaths by lying to the American people, as was disclosed when we heard the Bob Woodward tapes where he was telling the truth about what he knew. How this man has not been charged with crimes, you only need evidence to satisfy a probable cause standard that he committed crimes, and we have that in bucket loads. So let's let's pull on a thread of foreign interference. Maybe this is um, starting to come apart with Tom Barrick. So uh, for for our listeners, you know, Tom Barrick was the uh, inaugural chairman of the Trump <clears throat> campaign of the Trump uh, White House, and well, as, actually, let let me play a clip. Let me play a clip for the audience. Turning now to some other developing news involving a different presidential administration. Reuters is reporting that Tom Barrick, chairman of the Trump inauguration and longtime friend of the former president, has just pled not guilty to charges of violating federal lobbying laws and working as a foreign agent for the UAE in a Brooklyn federal court this morning. His plea means the case is headed for trial. Last week, the billionaire was released on a massive $250 million bail following his arrest in California. That's one of the largest bails ever posted. We'll bring you more developments as we get them. So let's pause and I'm, I'm going to stop sharing the screen here. The bail is just an enormous amount, $250 million. And uh, just listening to your pre- previous talks, you talked about how, look, you know, compared to his wealth, it's, it's, it's a lot for us, uh, not that much compared to his wealth. But um, you also mentioned often that it's a signal to the seriousness of the crime. So let's dive in. This is breaking news. This is as of yesterday. Um, maybe a couple of part question. Can we use the bail as a proxy to how serious the crime is? Maybe that's part number one. And part number two is, you know, one can say, okay, well, he was a, a you know a Trump friend, clearly an inaugural chairman. How you know much can inaugural can an inaugural chairman actually influence U.S. policy? And you know what was the UAE doing? Was it as serious as actually influencing our policy? Can you just help us break this down because there's a lot of noise. What's actually beyond the noise? Yeah, this is a great, meaty, important topic, Alex and. Let me answer, answer your first question. Does the amount of the bail tell us anything about the seriousness of the offenses? I'm going to say yes and no. Here's what it tells us, I think, more directly. It tells us what kind of a flight risk and what kind of a danger to the community the, the offender, the defendant, 
is because there are only two reasons that a judge can de detain somebody, can jail somebody pending trial. That is if the judge concludes that there is clear and convincing evidence that the person will flee to avoid trial or that the person poses a danger to the community. For example, will tamper with witnesses, will destroy evidence, will hurt people, will do something that undermines the, the sanctity of the criminal justice process. So, um, but, you know, there are people who commit really serious crimes, but they have relatively little means and the judge might set a $1,000 bail or a $500 bail. So it doesn't necessarily tell us that much about the seriousness of the crimes. But, and, and let's face it, $250 million, Tom Barrett can find that in his couch cushions because it was reported to be something like 0.5% of his overall worth or, or wealth, right? So, and of course, here's what, here's what really upsets me, and I'm gonna try to keep the blood pressure down, but um, if you have a young man who steals a woman's purse, he could very well find himself in jail pending trial. Tom Barrick, if he committed the crimes with which he has been charged, he betrayed our nation. Even the Department of Justice press release described his, describes his alleged criminal conduct as, quote, disloyal, close quote, to the United States. Because the press release, I have all my paperwork in front of me, court documents, and I do everything on, on uh, legal pads and dry erase whiteboards, as Shimon knows, because I, I am computer phobic. But um, even the, the, the Department of Justice press release that was issued right after they unsealed the Barrick indictment so we could learn a little bit more about it, they said that Tom Barrick was basically un illegally acting as an agent for the United Arab Emirates. He was taking direction from Emirati officials, national security officials, military officials, diplomatic officials, and he was surreptitiously offering UAE's priorities, policy priorities, as the United States policy priorities, going so far as to um, pen speeches for Trump, putting these UAE words in Donald Trump's mouth. Donald Trump doesn't know what he's reading on teleprompters. He just reads it and not particularly well. The Department of Justice press release also says Barrick was bringing intelligence back to the UAE. They use the word intelligence, but they don't describe what it is. And then they go on to say his conduct was disloyal to the United States. And there's an asset forfeiture clause, the very end of the Barrick indictment. We don't know how much, because they didn't detail it in the indictment itself, how much Barrick got from the UAE for this, you know, acting as an illegal foreign agent for them. But whatever it is, the United States government will be going after it because they included an asset forfeiture clause in the indictment. We'll learn more about that um, probably in the coming months. But I wanna finish the thought that I jumped away from. Whereas some, some young man for stealing a purse might be jailed pending trial, Tom Barrick is on release after betraying his country if the charges are proven. He's on release and he was released to his $15 million home in Aspen, Colorado. That's where he'll be spending his pretrial days. And, you know, maybe he thinks that's a hardship because, you know, it's not ski season. So who wants to be in Aspen? 
But, um, you know, it does highlight the disparity of treatment. You know, one defendant disloyal to his country charged with seven felony crimes, including lying to the FBI four times to cover up his acting illegally as a foreign agent. And he gets to hang out in his mansion in Colorado, where a poor young man with no means ends up sitting in jail pending his robbery trial. There is a disparity of treatment in the criminal justice system that I can only hope we can address moving forward. This episode is brought to you by Caviar Gems, the world's most exquisite dehydrated caviar used for cocktails, seasonings, and your favorite recipes. And also our partnership with Defiance Media, a 24-7 syndicated linear TV network that brings you all the latest in AI, robotics, blockchain, crypto, and anything innovation. Tune in. Yeah, I mean, I think what's fascinating about this case is it just shows how when you have centralized power, it's so easy to corrupt. Uh, one of the things that are, I, I'm, I'm very kind of optimistic about the United States and I love the, the platform that is called the United States is because a bunch of people came here from Europe and said, okay, how do we create a system that will avoid all the problems we have in, in monarchies in, in Europe? And, you know, they had the constitution and the separation of powers and all of these things were breakthroughs, but like with time they got corrupted and now it's shocking that foreign power can tell the president of United of the United States what to say. And the crazy thing is, I'm not even sure if Trump was aware or not. And I'm not even sure what's worse. Because like, if he was aware, that's like really bad, you're betraying your country. If you're not aware, it's like you're so incompetent that you're surrounding yourself with people that are just so incompetent, it's almost cartoonish. But the damage is real. Like it's uh this is why on our show, we speak a lot about like open financial systems that are decentralized, which means that they can't be controlled because like now I'm thinking, and, and, and this can be a good segue about the difference between the previous administration and this administration, but I'm thinking, for example, the COVID response, part of it was great, which was like, let's print a bunch of money and stimulate the economy. But the other part is like, we're going to pick winners and, and, and losers. Like we're gonna bail out the, the airlines but we're not gonna bail out small businesses. We're gonna let Target uh, you know, sell clothes uh, because it also sells food. But if you have a mom and pop store that like sells uh, clothes and food, it's like, sorry, you're not an essential business. So like, I just think that the more centralized the power is, uh, the, more, the easier it is to corrupt. And yeah, we can hope to get good people in office that are incorruptible. But I mean, the, the financial incentives to corrupt, I, I just, I, can't even think like this UAE deal. I know from the, the Israeli perspective, they did this piece and they gave him F-35s. The UAE got F-35s, which is very, very few countries uh, around the world have access to this plane. You know, the US invested so much money in developing this plane and it gives you like a very, very uh, strategic advantage. And now this thing with the UAE, it's like, oh, did they slip this in, you know, to the peace accord with Israel? Oh, by the way, we also want some F-35s. It's crazy to me. So um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, on, on the centralization of power and how, how it can be corrupted. Yeah, um, you know, if we read the 10th Amendment, we're not supposed to have a, an all-powerful, you know, federal government. It says mm -hmm. that, the powers of the federal government are few and enumerated. The powers of the states and the people respectively 
are unlimited. That's where all the power <coughs> is supposed to be. And yet, really, I think probably going back to the New Deal, we began to centralize all of the power in the federal government. And what I will say, I'm not going to say the Tenth Amendment is, is dead, but the federal government wields the vast majority of the power. That is here to stay, in my estimation. I don't think there's any way for the federal government to agree to cede that power back to the states. You know, there is always a, a friction and sometimes you know, legal battles erupt between what the federal government has the authority to do and what the state government retains the authority to do. But listen, we have morphed into a nearly all-powerful centralized federal government, and I think that's here to stay. Yeah, so there is um, one thing that Shimon and I always talk about to this point, and this is my view, but I think the traditional Republican view has been small federal government, right? At its, at its core, the traditional Democrat or more left view is, you know, bigger federal government, more social programs, just distilling them down to very basics. And we, everyone can, I think, acknowledge that Trump running, Trump was never a traditional Republican uh, ever. I mean, by any values or standards. But ironically, the, the best case for having a small federal government and more powerful states is actually Trump. You know, yeah. had we had a more centralized system, Trump would have been able to do much more damage than a system where the states have rights. And, there, and then there is this um, friction, good friction, I think, between states' rights and federal rights. And I think this is why the U.S., is actually quite unique and different than many other countries or uh, groups of power like the European Union in the world, where we have this, we the forefathers have had this foresight to create this creative uh, friction, if you will, between the states and the federal government. Same thing for the Senate and, and the House. You know, things, people complain that things don't progress fast and it's very frustrating. And as an aside, I tend to run at like 2x speed of anyone's life and I just want to go, go, go and get things done. And so it's very frustrating to me. But if I take a step back and think the fact that things move slowly through Congress is actually a feature. It's not a bug of the system. It's a feature to make sure that we have this debate that things move and progress in a way that doesn't destabilize the system they created. And, and the, to think that, hey, Trump is actually a great case example for the Republican, you know, uh, or, or not necessarily Republican, but more uh, the stance of less federal government is, is quite interesting. Yeah, I want I to think ask that, you. Let, yeah, let me just please. follow up because that, that's a great point that you make about the consequences of Trump. Um, the, one of the problems, though, is Trump has unleashed sort of um, lawlessness and he's made lawlessness fashionable. So yes, typically I think the states being closer to the citizens, closer to the constituents are generally in a better position to assess what the legal and political needs are of their own constituents, their own residents. And you could even go down to the cities and the towns and the local school board. Why? Because you're getting closer and closer to the people you are there to serve. So you have your finger on the pulse in the way that the federal government can't have its finger on the pulse of every community in every state. The problem though, is Trump has made lawlessness fashionable. So now we see our state legislate 
legislatures um, passing blatantly unconstitutional laws, and they don't care because Trump has made lawlessness fashionable. So when you have Texas passing the so-called heartbeat law, which doesn't just tinker around the edges of Roe v. Wade, of Supreme Court precedent, it completely ignores and contradicts it, and the Texas state legislature doesn't care. And I fear that's a trend of states no longer accepting or recognizing Supreme Court precedent, passing laws that are blatantly unconstitutional, depriving their own citizens of constitutional rights to privacy that the Supreme Court has announced they have. And so I think that turns the whole federal power, state power argument that we will always have a little bit on its head if the states begin to act in a lawless way. Can I just add one, so one more here on this note, a thought actually to a reaction to what you said and, and then a question to you. And this is to echo what Shimon said, you know, we on a podcast uh, on a show focus a lot about finances, obviously, and we're both fairly big into Bitcoin and crypto and this concept, why this concept of, of centralization versus decentralization. And it's very American, very inherent in our culture to be innovative and entrepreneurial. And, uh, even as you talked about, hey, you know, the states are, you used a very interesting word, closer to the people, right? This concept of the man or the person, the man or woman on the ground is closest to the problem. It's the concept of our military, the way our military operates, very uh, like creative, right? Forces creative innovation. <clears throat> so that permeates through companies, through tech, creating innovation. We're the best country in the world for innovation. And it's kind of very inherent in our culture, this creative, uh, this decentralization that forces creative creativity to blossom and forces innovation to blossom because everyone is trying to figure out a better solution. And there's inherent competition among the states, across the states, and so on. Yet you talk about how states are passing now uh, unconstitutional laws, but don't we have this escape valve, which is the Supreme Court? where, you know, theoretically, if you pass an un unconstitutional law, it gets challenged and challenged in the appellate courts and goes up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court would, you know, uh, give a ruling. And so is that still a valid escape valve for us? Um, it is the only escape valve we have because that's our process. But here, here's the thing, Alex. Once the state, once the governor of Texas signed into law the heartbeat legislation, which directly contradicts Roe v. Wade and deprives a woman, and I don't really take positions on pro-life versus pro-choice. I take positions on the law and, and, and precedent handed down by the Supreme Court. Um, it will deprive a woman of the constitutionally protected right she has under our Supreme Court precedent to make that decision in the first trimester. It's easy for us to say, maybe just because we're men and we won't be giving birth anytime soon, that, hey, someday the Supreme Court will take that up. In the meantime, you have deprived citizens of a federal constitutional right the Supreme Court says they have. And that to me is unacceptable because whether I agree with the, the spirit of the legislation or not, 
what I am driven by is an allegiance to the rule of law and the rights that we all enjoy as Americans. Even if I disagree with the way you exercise that right, I'll fight tooth and nail to support you in your right to exercise your constitutional rights. So that's that's where the real danger comes in. And as you say, this is the greatest, you know, government experiment on, on the planet. Um, the problem is if there is no allegiance to law, the entire experiment fails. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. And it's a good segue getting back to uh, to Trump with the states. Do you think that the state of New York, for example, could bring charges against like financial charges against Trump? Uh, even if the federal level is dragging its feet. Uh, I, I read something yesterday where there was some kind of breakthrough where they found a link between Trump the person and Trump the organization, uh, but I don't know too much about that. So uh, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I think New York can and probably will indict Donald Trump eventually. They indicted his chief financial officer and what we learned from the Alan Weisselberg indictment is that the Trump organization for decades, it's a 15-year crime that has been charged, a, a criminal scheme, uh, scheme to defraud in the first degree, where they were keeping two sets of books. Here's the ones that we showed the government for tax purposes, and here's what's really going on in the Trump organization. When you have evidence like that, a prosecution can't lose that case. We can always lose a case, but it's relatively easy to prove. The only remaining question is does Alan Weisselberg go to trial or does he plead guilty and cooperate with the prosecution to bring Trump down? I don't happen to believe they need Alan Weisselberg to indict and convict Trump because they have the controller, which a guy named Jeffrey McConney, who is basically Alan Weisselberg's Alan Weisselberg, right? Alan Weisselberg is Trump's right-hand man. McConney is the controller, is Weisselberg's right-hand man. McConaughey's cooperating. He's in the grand jury. He's got immunity. He's already given up all the dirt on the Trump organization. So, and of course, they have eight years worth of Donald Trump's tax returns and financial records from uh, the, his accounting firm, courtesy of two trips to the Supreme Court. I don't believe they, the prosecutors need Alan Weisselberg to flip. I believe they simply want him to flip. But New York can and should bring criminal charges against Donald Trump for his, you know, decades long financial crimes in New York, if the evidence supports it. And it frankly has nothing to do with the fact that he used to be president. He's no longer president. None of that matters. New York has jurisdiction over Donald Trump and his crimes committed in the state of New York. I believe they will indict him. I also hope that the Department of Justice isn't waiting to see what the states will do, because Donald Trump is a federal problem because he committed federal crimes in violation of the laws of the United States, and he victimized the American people. A federal problem needs a federal solution, and that looks like a federal indictment assuming the evidence supports it. It's wonderful that New York may indict him, that Georgia may indict him for being caught on a phone call saying, you need to find me 11,780 votes so I can wrongfully declare myself the winner of the Georgia, Georgia election. That's a crime that a, a novice prosecutor could prove in his or her sleep. So it's great that the states are taking up the crimes Donald Trump committed in their jurisdictions, but it would be a gross abdication of our responsibilities if the Department of Justice declined to bring a federal indictment against Donald Trump for his federal crimes. Glenn, can I ask you, what's the, uh, 
maximum potential, you know, exposure here. I don't know if you can quantify it, but there's Georgia's things there, you know, the coming after tax returns, um, Surely he's done a lot of wrong, or at least it seems like, right? Innocent until guilty. I really do believe um, in that. But what are they just coming after him to come after him? You know, what's the potential exposure that he can get if he's charged and convicted in Georgia and in New York? You know, where what sets what's what trumps what, if you will. So uh, let, let's use the Weisselberg indictment as a measuring stick. He's, he was indicted for, I want to say, 15 counts, um, you know, from the criminal scheme to defraud over a 15-year period to grand larceny because he stole hundreds of thousands of dollars by criminally evading federal taxes, New York state taxes, and New York city taxes. He lied to his own tax preparer who flipped against Alan Weisselberg. I mean, Alan Weisselberg is done. He will be convicted if he goes to trial. I'm confident of that based on a review of the evidence in the indictment. Um, He's facing about 15 years as a maximum punishment. The reason I say that is because when you look at all the crimes that have been charged against Alan Weisselberg and you added up all the statutory maximum penalties, it would probably be, you know, 100 years. But you can only confine a man for but one life. So the reality is when multiple charges are brought and there's some overlap in the criminal activity that supports each charge, the the sentences will run together. They say run concurrent. So the maximum punishment he'll be facing, Weisselberg, is about 15 years. Using that as a measuring stick, if that's 15 years for openers for Donald Trump, one count of obstruction of justice federally carries a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison. And Bob Mueller documented as many as 10 counts of obstructing justice in volume two of the Mueller report. The Georgia election laws, that would be more criminal exposure. So the numbers don't really matter because Donald Trump, you know, doesn't have that much time left given his age and, you know, what he chooses to to ingest. Um, And so the numbers don't really matter. He, you know, any, any conviction. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. I think we should, um, we, we should probably say thank you for all your time and start wrapping up. But there's one question that we ask of everyone. Uh, and that is, we call it the top tip, if you will. So, and this is a top tip for anything, hobbies, books, movies. What's the, most interesting, unique thing maybe you've done recently that you think others should read or do or see, I don't know, pick up Tango, for example. <laughs> what, so I, I know, I know you're thinking, but, um, but hey, just any, anything ha- can be, has to do with justice or not, but, but uh, anything that you want to put out there. So what has sparked, um, provided a spark to my life like nothing else I have ever experienced is having my first grandchild. So what I would recommend to all of your viewers and listeners is to find a way to have your first grandchild. Have some grandchildren, Um, everyone. Have some grandchildren because I have five daughters and a son and and a pretty darn good couple of son-in-laws. And if, uh, 
I can't describe what it was like when a few weeks ago I met my granddaughter, Paz Laura, for the first time. It's indescribable. So more so than any movie I've seen, any book I've read, anybody I've had the privilege of meeting and learning from for the first time, that's what I, I can't recommend highly enough having your first franchise. <laughs> awesome. I'm, I'm blushing a little bit here because uh, full disclosure, Glenn is my father-in-law and Paz is my uh, daughter. Uh, I, I uh, feel the same way. Uh, but Glenn, thank you. This has been fantastic. Can you please tell our viewers, how can they follow you, uh, figure out, uh, you know, some, I know you're working on some really interesting civic initiatives uh, that people can maybe join uh, and just any, any other uh, parting words? Yeah, so I, they're, they're, I have these social media tentacles, none of which I understand, and I can't even remember like the official names for any of them. But if people want to see the daily YouTube videos, just go to Glenn Kirshner 2, or just put my name in YouTube. Justice Matters is kind of the name of the channel, but it's run under Glenn Kirshner 2 every day, seven days a week. I'm trying to analyze whatever the the hot legal topic is and make it understandable for folks. I also have a team, we call it Team Justice, and we're over on patreon.com. And if you wanna support our all volunteer efforts and, and mission, um, the Justice Matters work is all volunteer work. Um, you can go over to Patreon, Glenn Kirshner too on Patreon. You can become a patron and you can be plugged into our Team Justice initiatives. We have something called the Democracy Pledge, we sent a letter out to all 50 state attorneys general CC to the governors, urging them to investigate avoidable COVID deaths in their states. We have a number of other um, sort of uh, really grassroots citizen involvement initiatives um, that we're working on. So you can come over to Patreon. I'm on Twitter all day and night, Glenn Kirshner too, trying to answer people's legal questions. Um, you can see me on MSNBC three, four, five days a week depending on the news cycle. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm all over the place. Yeah, I just wanted to urge our viewers, please get involved in what, whatever way you see fit. Uh, this democracy project, right? It's not gonna keep itself going if, if people are not involved. And it can be involvement by being on top of things. It can be involvement by, I know Glenn has several initiatives like he mentioned, where you can have a disproportionate effect in the workings of the government. I mean, the most disturbing thing to me about Donald Trump is that thank God that he was incompetent because if we would have had someone that's like very, very smart and competent with the temperament of Donald Trump, it could really have destroyed the country. So please get involved, uh, follow Glenn on Twitter uh, and, and YouTube. And, um, and yeah, this, this was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Glenn, for uh, coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me, guys. And what I appreciate most is you didn't ask me questions about financial matters or numbers <laughs> because, you know, full disclosure, if I want to count to 20, I have to take my shoes off. I know nothing about high finance. So that that's y'all's uh, specialty. <laughs>